Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I invite you to read my new report, The Defender's Dilemma, which you can find on AEI.org. And another report comes out on the 9th of March on the subject of adapting Cold War deterrence for gray zone aggression. Yes, it is possible. And I invite you to read that report too, which you can do by signing up for news at AEI.org. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter as well. And my handle is very easy. It's Elizabeth Braw. Now, on the 13th of October, this is while Indian and, and Chinese troops were clashing in Galwan Valley. It's unclear precisely what happened there, but what we do know is that the soldiers squared off against one another using very primitive tools, including rocks and clubs. And at the end, 20 Indian soldiers were dead and four Chinese ones as well. And while this was happening, power went out in Mumbai, which has a population of, of some 20 million and is, of course, a major business hub in India. Hospitals in the middle of the COVID pandemic had to switch to backup generators. The stock market had to close. Uh, trains couldn't move. And, well, we know what happens when there is a power cap. It's disastrous. More recently, in February this year, China decided to suspend imports of Taiwanese pineapples. Now, that sounds very strange because China has imported Taiwanese pineapples for a very long time. But now China said that uh, there, are, there were mysterious organisms in these pineapples. And it's clear to everybody that that's an excuse. Uh, China just wanted to punish Taiwan. And in this case, it was punishment because the Taiwanese government had opted not to use China's COVID vaccine. So there we go. No pineapple exports from Taiwan to China. And the same thing has happened to Australian wine. Australian winemakers were essentially cut off from their biggest export market a few months ago when China introduced punitive tariffs on Australian wine in response, although it didn't say as much, but in response to Australia, suggesting that there should be a proper COVID-19 investigation over the origins of COVID-19. And of course, we have the artificial islands in the South China Sea. All of these issues may seem a bit trivial and maybe not something that, that Western government should be involved in, but each of them suggests that it is possible for a country that wants to weaken another country or wants to weaken many other countries to do so and to get away with it because nobody responds and nobody, no country signals to that country that it's not acceptable to do these things. So, of course, if you can get away with it, why not if you're China? And so I wanted to discuss this with one of my favorite thinkers on deterrence, Mark Montgomery, who is the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And now Mark served for 32 years in the U.S. Navy as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer, and he retired as a rear admiral in 2017. Among his many interesting positions, assignments, is director of operations at the U.S. Pacific Command, where, of course, he got a close view of the artificial island construction. He has also served as commander of Carrier Strike Group 5, embarked on the USS George Washington Station in Japan, and been deputy director of plans, policy, and strategy at the U.S. European Command, and among other things, he has a master's degree in history from Oxford University. So, Mark, what do we make of this? If you're an aggressive country, is the world open 
to you because nobody will stop you if and unless you use military force. Is that the reality today? So I think the reality today is that Russia and China practice a mix of economic coercion, unconventional information operations, political influence, and cyber operations, you know, to try to advance their interests. And and they, they do it in a way that democracies don't have a very effective response. And you said it perfectly. They try to establish a level of operations, acceptable operations, below the use of force, below which they know will respond in some meaningful way. And they test that. And every once in a while, they go too far and they get sanctions from us or things like that, but they test that. And against the United States, it's a game of of finding what that limit is and just continually exploiting it. And a lot of this has to do with with how the United States responds to the gray zone, which is, as a democracy, it's, it's hard. We look, before we take action, we want to be sure that we have proper attribution and that causes delay. And sometimes you never reach that kind of solid intelligence community verified 100%. This is, this is who did what to whom. And as a result, we're slow. I, I think the only thing that, that's slower than the United States is probably the European Union, the idea of them reaching kind of a having a deliberate process that says the attribution is this country and the appropriate response is this thing. So I think democracies in general are challenged to respond here. The United States, and specifically with China and Russia, we've had, we have a poor track record of responding to this. I worry more when they do these gray zone operations against other countries, though, because those countries really don't have a response. In other words, how many more exports from Taiwan do the Chinese want to cancel? As many as they want. You know, exactly. it, is a, it is a constant pressure game. And I worry, too, and I don't think we've spoken about this before, but I, I think it's interesting if you look back at the U.S.-Soviet relations in the 1970s and 80s, or 60s, 70s, and 80s, we reached an agreement on what was acceptable behavior in the, we didn't call it the gray zone there, but in, the, in this non-military contest. And that's because we were two nuclear powers. And I think that's broken today. I think Russia, because of nuclear weapons are all Putin has, he's not going to let that limit his operations in the gray zone. And I think with China, they just haven't adopted to this yet. But they're a nuclear power conducting these testing operations in the gray zone and seeing what kind of response to get from us. What if they get an escalatory response? You know, what if they accidentally start an escalation chain? And so I think that's an interesting element of this. If we were talking about two non-nuclear states, it'd be one thing. But when two nuclear states are in a gray zone competition, I think there's, there's some escalation risk in there. And the United States, and we don't say this about ourselves that often these days, but as the adult in the room, you know, we generally have been the one who's patient and consensus building and try to de-escalate things as rapidly as possible. And I should point out, we are recording this on the 2nd of March, and it is Mikhail Gorbachev's 90th birthday. And it's worth remembering that he and his predecessors, as you pointed out, Mark, as much as we may have disliked them and and disliked their ideology, in particular his predecessors' ideology and and actions, at least, as you say, they followed the rules of, of the game as it had been established between the two superpowers and between the two blocs. Those rules of the game are essentially non-existent today. It may seem like a trivial matter if, if Taiwan can't export pineapples to, to China because China claims to have spotted some mysterious organisms in the pineapples. And, and it may seem like a trivial issue if Australia can't export wine. 
But we have to remember that these issues are important to these countries. Such punishment is important. Well, it's painful to the countries that receive it. And thinking back to 2010, when the Norwegian Nobel Peace Prize Committee awarded the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize to Chinese dissidents, China punished Norway by doing exactly the same thing, by claiming that there was something wrong with Norwegian salmon. Norwegian salmon could no longer be sold to China. That is painful punishment for Norway. And lo and behold, in the subsequent years, Norway acted in a very friendly manner manner towards China. So it did work. You can essentially, without using violence, you can get countries, especially smaller countries, and every country is smaller than China. You can force them to do what you want them to do. And so, Mark, what I want to ask you is, where is the red line? So you saw the, the construction of those artificial islands, well, observed it while it was happening. At which point does a country, especially the United States, say, well, this is where it's, it's no longer acceptable? And how do we communicate before that point that the other side shouldn't reach that point because it really is unacceptable? I, th- I think the first thing is that the country who's observing this, the action by someone operating below the gray zone has to have a clear, articulated strategic vision and operational lines of effort for, for how they see things happening. And that's what we are missing there. I don't, I don't think we clearly understood. We did not clearly articulate that freedom of navigation through the South China Sea and broadly in the Western Pacific was a national interest of the United States till way too late in the game. By that point, China had, had already begun to you know, recover these maritime features that weren't islands and build them up into islands. And, you know, at that point, we were, President Obama was asking President Xi, will you please not militarize these? To which Xi said, of course, I won't militarize them. And then six months later, you know, chose to militarize them. So my, my point on this is that you, that the time for the Obama administration to have a, a good understanding of would you allow this behavior to exist was in 2008, not 2014 or 2010, maybe, you know, not 2014. And as China came off its charm offensive in the, in the Southeast Asia, we should have stepped back and said, what does this mean to the United States? How do we work with our allies and partners? What are going to be acceptable and unacceptable actions by the Chinese? And signal that to them immediately. And I think if we'd done that in 2011, even 2012, it might have had an effect on, on Chinese thinking. And then again, it might not have. I think the Chinese, you're right. They have a big country, small country mentality. Which is ironic that they they act like we're a big country, you're a small country, certainly the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, in the, in the neighborhood. And then they act like an immature country when dealing with us. In other words, doing this work, you know, in the gray zone below the use of force against the United States, hoping we wouldn't escalate. That's being the younger brother or the child in the relationship. And I, and I know the Chinese don't like to hear this, but they have this problem. And if they want to be the big country, the adult country, they have to act like it. And that means you don't operate in the gray zone because one day, they will do something that kicks off an escalation ladder with us, and maybe we'll get de-escalate off of it. But I have to tell you, a lot of military plans are called escalate to de-escalate. Yeah. And you can, imagine, you can imagine that doesn't always work. And so you could escalate to escalate. You know, We could escalate to escalate in a response, and that would be unfortunate. And I would put the blame for that on the Chinese for their constant actions. Now, look, I would hold ourselves accountable for not responding properly at the right time earlier. But I'd also say, in the end, the lion's share of responsibility belongs to the country who continues to probe and push with economic coercion, political pressure, and this kind of cyber operations and information operations below the use of force. 
And as you say, escalate to de-escalate it has been used so many times, the concept. But I think that the challenging thing with that concept is that you trust the adversary to then respond in the way you hope that he will respond. There is nothing automatic about that response that the adversary can choose to, to instead escalate even more. And so we are essentially just hoping that our escalation will cause de-escalation while having no guarantee that that's, that that's the case. You know, and I think you've mentioned the area where we should worry about this the most, and that's Taiwan. I mean, I think that the problem in Taiwan, we're quickly approaching the point where two national interests are going to be in, in direct conflict. One is the Chinese belief that it is a, you know, that it isn't a state, that Taiwan is itself a state of the People's Republic, and that the time for this breakaway republic, to, it's time to be reeled back in. And I think Taiwan understands that there is, even if they previously believed there was a one country, two systems approach, that bridge has been burned in Hong Kong. And then, of course, the United States is starting to realize that our credibility as an ally and partner in Asia is becoming increasingly tied to whether or not we'll support Taiwan. If you're Japan or Korea, you have to look at us. Or if you're the Philippines, Indonesia, even Australia, India, countries assessing the viability of the United States as a credible, reliable partner, our performance in Taiwan is a significant marker. And so you're now reaching a point where two of us have this significant national interest that is conflicting. And if the Chinese pressure, you know, the natural response, like let's say they begin to, you know, inspect, you know, ships going into Taiwan, I mean, that would be, that's one of the choices they have for economic escalation. And the United States surges submarines and aircraft carriers into the theater, to demonstrate our support to Taiwan, where that's an escalation by us, hoping to de- de-escalate the solution. If the Chinese response is something provocative back, and there's any kind of miscalculation at the, you know, by 35-year-old commanding officers of ships or 25-year-old fighter pilots, you know, you can imagine these things happening, and suddenly you're walking yourself up an escalation ladder between two nuclear-armed adversaries. And by the way, for the United States, in a position where we have to use, you know, hard power because of the distances where, you know, the natural disadvantages we have in, def- in defending Taiwan, you kind of have to get all in quick in any kind of military plan. My point on this is that this Taiwan issue is becoming more and more obvious and the level of, of pressure, economic pressure, political pressure, and information operations being practiced by China against Taiwan is is ratcheting up on a monthly basis. And as you say, everybody's watching how Taiwan's friends, especially the US, will respond to this, because it, uh, even though there is no formal alliance such as NATO, it, it, it is expected that, that Taiwan's friends will help it. Now, will that help extend beyond condemnation, which is, as you said, something that the European Union is very good at? Well, then not doing very much to follow up on it. But what is that action? And then another thing I wanted to bring up, because you are the the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, is that I feel there is enormous belief and and trust in in Western societies that, oh, if anything happens in the gray zone, we'll hit them back in cyberspace and we are very good in cyberspace. And that is undoubtedly true. But my question is, do you think that this reliance on, on offensive cyber maybe has given us a, a false sense of, of security because we think, oh, the US Cyber Command will sort it out because they are really good, when in fact cyber 
offensive cyber can only be one form of deterrent signaling and, and retaliation. I think you're right that a lot of the American public believes that we have an offensive cyber capability that could be used to, you know, that is in effect a strong retaliatory capability that might deter somebody else or it could be used to, to prevent further action. I don't think that's shared by our senior military or civilian leadership. I think they recognize, and I think our commission made clear that cyber is a, a tool. It's not an effective single domain tool. Cyber is most effective when integrated into other warfighting areas. And as a unique tool to go, you can certainly do things with a cyber tool. I'm confident that there are on-net operators at Cyber Command or in our intelligence community that can disable elements of an electrical power grid almost anywhere in the world. But that's a very temporal, limited thing. An adversary can work off in it. I think that we would not ever try to rely on cyber tools alone to go back at somebody. I do think what we saw in India is alarming. Now, I'm in no position to say whether it's true or not. But if, as press reports state, the Chinese intentionally employed an offensive tool, in other words, they didn't accidentally employ it where they were placing something and it enabled. But if they were placing something and then enabled it to take down a urban electrical power grid, that's a significant movement in the gray zone. If done against the United States, I believe that would break the threshold of the gray zone and require a U.S. response. So obviously, that would not be good if China or Russia did that to the United States, because a significant response would likely be a mix of kinetic and non-kinetic. And I mean, suddenly you're in a, in a very escalatory condition. And that's why I don't think it's happened. But I think this is the kind of immaturity of the Chinese leadership doing this against India, because first of all, if they think that the Indians are going to be coward, I think they don't understand Indian leadership and how India views itself developing in the world. And in fact, it probably just drives the US and India and like-minded countries closer together. But on top of it, it is an absolutely inappropriate use. That's not like saying, I'm not buying your, your pineapples today or your wine. That is putting people's lives at risk. That is the equivalent of letting a bomb off on an open street and maybe a car was passing by and people were killed. Maybe they weren't. I think you, you need to be held accountable for that. So we'll have to see how that plays out in terms of attribution and the kind of certitude. Obviously, the Chinese at this point won't admit to having done it publicly for, you know, because of international condemnation. But I think the rest of us, including the Europeans particularly, need to look at this and understand the only reason you're not being subjected to this is that you're so easily manipulable through economic coercion. Yeah. But there will be a day when the EU finds itself very much at the mercy of all aspects of Chinese gray zone competition, and they should be very careful the degree to which they are not aggressively working with the United States and like-minded countries to press back on inappropriate actions, either through the WTO or other international organizations where China has gotten a generally free pass. That's right. And if I can throw one other aspect in, into the conversation, that the, I think that the challenge is how to communicate what is acceptable. So clearly, the cyber attack disabling the power supply of the city of Mumbai with 20 million residents is not okay. But below the Article 5 threshold, it's just very, very hard to specify what, what we consider unacceptable because it's, it can be anything. And how do we communicate that to a country such as China before the fact so that we, we can actually have some sort of deterrent signaling? Because after the fact, it's just a matter of retaliation and hope that it doesn't happen again. So 
how do we decide what is unacceptable use of, of gray zone aggression and how do we communicate that? I think that's the hardest question. I think there's things we can do to make things better outside of that communication, and that's better intelligence collection and warning. So you have a better understanding of what's happening. You give decision makers, especially in a democracy, additional time to make a decision. And believe me, there's not, there's never not more time that they would desire. Most of our decision makers really want to let the situation play out as much as possible. But good intelligence and warning. But then I think you do have to say, like what happened in India, I think it would be very clear that we could say, we consider that a punitive act. We could even say we consider something like that an act of war. That if you actually disable the electrical power grid and impact the lifeline systems, you know, water, power, energy, healthcare of American citizens, we will take action against you. There will be a mix of kinetic and non-kinetic. There will be a mix of military and economic, but you will, you will have forced us to escalate the issue. And I think we should also make clear it won't be exactly tit for tat, you know, that we will take action that we'll probably attempt to remove your ability to do this in the future. I would contrast this with solar winds. And that's what's so hard in cyber warfare these days is that people, I think people understand the difference between espionage and military activity in a conventional sense. Yes. But in the and, cyber world, it's hard. Yeah. But it's, it's worth highlighting once again that, that solar winds was, as far as we can tell today, was an espionage operation. And in a sense, we could say that we could conclude that U.S. cyber deterrence worked because while the Russians were in there, they didn't use that access for disruption. I agree. I think they operated like a great power in that resolve. And they, they understood, look, from what we know, again, I think the SolarWinds investigation probably has another 12 months in it. But you know, once we have total understanding that hey, this was a traditional espionage act, this is, you know, some American senators said this was a Pearl Harbor or this was like Russian bombers flying over our country. Both Republicans and Democrats said that. They're both wrong. This was espionage. This was like an SVR agent walking through the halls of commerce or treasury with a stick drive, putting it into each computer, downloading the hard drive, you know, of emails and data, then flying back on an Aeroflot flight to Moscow, you know, processing it, flying back the next morning and doing it and doing that every day, except the flight on Aeroflot took three seconds instead of 13 hours. And they were pulling this data from apparently eight or nine U.S. federal agencies and some number of private sector companies to gain an awareness of unclassified programs. And I will tell you, at some level, if you read enough unclassified information, you can gain a classified understanding. Maybe they got, got some understanding in, into how we were thinking about 5G based by the fact that they went into NTIA or how they were thinking about how we do sanctions decision-making based on going into Treasury. I understand what they were doing, but it was pure, it was espionage. It was tip your hat espionage. In other words, very well done. It may or may not compare, we'll have to see over the next year, to what OPM did, I mean, to what China did to the Office of Personnel Management in 2013, 14, 15, when they stole 24 million records of our government civil servants and their families. I mean, that was a pretty significant cyber espionage event. And there've been a few others, or something called Moonlight Maze in the 1999 to 2001 timeframe by the Russians as well. So what I would say is that espionage is one set of rules. It should be followed one way. But once you begin to insert malware, or once you activate malware and, and take down an electrical power grid or a water system or impact a transportation node, now you've crossed a line. And I think the US needs to articulate that. Our Cyberspace Australian Commission was clear about this. 
first, we need a good strategy, a complete strategy. We have an incomplete strategy right now. We need a complete strategy. Then we need to have a declaratory policy of what is acceptable and unacceptable. And then we need to signal you know, what, what that means exactly and what some of our capabilities are when necessary. Exactly. And signal before the fact, well, cyber, cyber aggression goes on all the time, but not wait until after a major incident to signal, but, but constantly signal. I commend to everybody the report by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which really is, is excellent, that the best report so far, hopefully to be followed by others, but the best report so far in the public domain about how to deter cyber aggression. Thank you very much, Mark Montgomery, for, for joining us here on the cast. Thank you also to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. And we'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp. <laughs>